Welcome to Safety Spectrum, your environmental health and safety connection. This program is a presentation of the Michigan Safety Conference. For almost a century, the annual conference has provided credible educational opportunities and valuable support to the safety and health practitioner by offering 120 instructional programs, along with exhibits highlighting the latest in safety equipment, instrumentation, and demonstrations. To learn more about the conference, please find us at MICH, M-I-C-H, safetyconference.org. Welcome to Safety Spectrum. I'm your host, Sheila Eide. This program is sponsored by the Michigan Safety Conference. Our topic today is indoor air quality and the science of industrial hygiene with our guest, Dave Woods. Indoor air quality and IAQ has become a front and center topic as people move back into buildings that may have been unoccupied for long periods of time, bringing with them the challenges of protection against respirable diseases. Dave is with Forensic Analytical Consulting Services and has been a practicing hygienist for over 30 years with problem-solving experience in residential, commercial, industrial, and nuclear work sites. He's also a past president of the Michigan Safety Conference. So thank you for joining me today, Dave. Thanks for having me, Sheila. Well, what I'd like to start out with is, uh, as I mentioned in the preamble there, is uh, what lessons have been discovered or learned about after closing buildings down to accommodate COVID quarantine? One of the interesting things that I learned is the prevalence or uptake of Legionella cases, right? When Legionella is a bacteria that grows and a lot of times we see it in water cooling towers, um, but it also happens if pipes don't have water running through them, a biofilm accumulates on that stagnant water inside of the pipe. And that biofilm is what allows the Legionnaire's disease, the Legionella bacteria to grow. Once you start running the water again and you aerosolize it, it becomes airborne and people can inhale the bacteria and they develop Legionella. Um, Bax just put out a, a little document on it that said, you know, Legionella can be three to four times more dangerous than COVID. Oh my goodness. So it's a little, you know, and, and a lot of these buildings being shut down and, and some of the problems we run into some of these buildings, they've been renovated for over the years. They never had any issues, but as you do these renovations, you get deadhead pipelines where you cut pipes off because you no longer need this section of pipe. Well, that's a pipe where there's no longer water running through it. It's just sitting in the building, filled up with water at the right temperature for the bacteria to grow. I did read an article recently where they were paying their staff in Las Vegas to go through the hotels and run the water in all the rooms. So now that makes a lot of sense. Oh, yep, and you, it's a matter of running the water. And if you do have Legionnaire's disease in your facility or Legionella bacteria in your facility, it can be a, a, a issue to get it out. I mean, the, the most common treatment is we shock treat the water supply. We pour a bunch of chlorine in there or chloroamines or nickel and silver. There's all kinds of different things, the copper and silver. We can put all kinds of different materials in your pipeline but you really need to bring in an expert to talk about, you know, where is it located? What's the concentrations? What's your piping system like? Chlorine is not always the best choice. 
it's the easiest, but it's not always the best choice. Huh. When I worked in the wastewater industry, uh, they used a lot of chlorine, which meant you have a lot of problems if there's a leak and a lot of practice in case a pig starts to leak, one of the tanks. But we ended up going with ultraviolet. Yep, and ultraviolet could work, but again, it's running water. You know, the way ultraviolet works is it needs to impact that material for a long enough time to be able to, to kill, to disinfect. <laughs> if you have running water, it's tough for it to do the disinfection. You know, for Legionnaire and piping, it's, I don't think ultraviolet's the first choice. It may be the best choice, but again, every situation's a little bit different. It's one of the things I've learned in 30 years. There is no easy answer. There is no set answer, right? Everything needs to be looked at initially and you start all over from scratch. And I think that's what's hard for people to understand is that there's more than one way to look at something. The clues aren't always right out there in the open. Would you say that's the most serious issue that you're looking at in these closed up buildings? Yeah, I would say Legionella is and then followed by mold. Mold is, you know, anytime you shut down a building and you don't, it's not being occupied, if you don't have the HVAC system running, you don't have air running, it, there's a chance for mold growth to occur. Let alone if you have a leak in a building and no one's in it, how it's like a tree falling in the forest, does anybody hear it, right? <laughs> you got water leaking in a building, you need, I mean, the, you have 48 hours. Once you have a water leak, you got 48 hours to dry it or, or you're going to have mold growth. Well, you hear people talk about toxic mold. What does that really mean? I, that, that was a, from the industrial hygiene side, toxic mold was a propaganda put out by the media, right? Trying to get people to run screaming from buildings. And that's just not the case. I mean, there, there, there is no such thing as toxic mold. There is mold and mold should not be growing inside of a building. And I don't care what type it is. It doesn't matter what type it is. If you have mold growth, you need to stop the water and get rid of the mold. And the problem with mold growth is it may start off with one type of mold. Aspergillus, Aspergillus penicillium is typically one of the initial findings. But if that building material still keeps getting wet, if it's still getting moisture, it's going to change into different types of mold. If you look at the mold kingdom, Stachybotrys, the black mold that everybody's afraid of, that's the kind of the top of the kingdom. Once mold starts to grow, it secretes some chemical enzymes to help digest the food and protect itself. It's telling other mold species, you can't grow here. This is my little spot. When stachybotrys gets involved, and it takes 10 to 14 days of a really wet building material with a lot of cellulose. So drywall is a great example. But if you have stachybotrys in the building, what that tells me is you have a long standing water leak, right? 10 to 14 days. And stachybotrys is the top of the kingdom. The enzymes it secretes are so toxic to other mold species, it kills it all just so it can grow. Wow, that's pretty nasty. Are people allergic to molds or does it affect everyone or? So everybody, yeah, so everybody's a little bit different. So as you know, we, the OSHA has established PELs, permissible exposure limits for a lot, a couple thousand different chemicals. We know that if you're exposed to this amount for 
if you're exposed to below the PEL for 30 years, you will not develop an occupational disease. Those are great numbers for us to use in the industrial hygiene side to help determine how dangerous is a product or a material you're working with. There is no PEL for mold. I don't think there ever will be a PEL for mold. You may be allergic to some mold species and I may not be, right? We're exposed to mold every day. It's ubiquitous. It is everywhere. In the fall in Michigan, outdoor concentrations can be 200 to 600,000 spores per cubic meter. Inside of a building, we like it to be below 1,500, but you're 200,000 outside the building, right? So you walk outdoors and you're getting a heck of a mold exposure. I mean, mold you you've got more air movement, don't you, when you're outside, so you're diluting it, aren't you? Correct, but at those concentrations, that's pretty significant. And if everybody had a mold exposure, if everybody had a, a mold allergy to those molds, there would be a lot of sick people running around the country. Oh. And I don't want to get controversial, but didn't Michigan always have lower PELs than what the federal standards were? They did, which was great because for OSHA to change their PELs, it, it almost literally an act of Congress and it just isn't worked out very well. So we use um, ACGIH, American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. They can update their TLVs or their PELs. We use those numbers quite a bit. I mean, they're less than OSHA. They're able to change their numbers much easier than OSHA. Okay. And the state of Michigan went back to all the federal numbers. And, and we just know in the industrial hygiene number, industrial hygiene field, the OSHA numbers aren't the answer all the time. They're, they're the law, but they're not always the best answer. Not the lowest that you'd like to see. I know we went down the mushroom trail here a little bit, but what exactly is IAQ? What is indoor air quality? It's not just mold. So it, indoor air quality is, it, yeah, it's more than just mold. It's all kinds of things. It's the amount of light and noise and um, temperature, relative humidity, carbon dioxide concentrations, hydrogen sulfide, any, anything that may be in the indoor environment that's affecting people's health, which is quite a list. Um, the big thing in Michigan now is the vapor intrusion sampling where you have a building next door was contaminated, it released a bunch of chemicals underground, those chemicals have worked their way underneath the slab of your building and now come into it. So there's been a lot of work in Michigan now to try and track that and test it and develop engineering controls to get rid of all of those volatile organic compounds that are coming into the building. Would that be related to these underground tank rules that were around, oh gosh, 30 years ago where people- so, and some, I mean, it's still coming from the DEQ, but the DEQ doesn't really have, so these, these exposure levels that they're establishing for vapor intrusion are really kind of out in left field. They're not based on OSHA. They're not based on ACGIH. They're not based on AIHA TLVs, right? They're not based on any known standards. They, the ones that we're using in Michigan are from the Department of Health and Human Services. <coughs> Excuse me. And they're based on 
exposures of people in a building for 12 hours or 24 hours, which is a lot different than the OSHA rules, which are based on an eight hour work exposure. So these numbers are in the parts per billion that you can be exposed to. And OSHA, it's all PPM, right? Parts per million. Now, what happens a lot of times, as I recall, when I was in the safety and health business is I would have one person complaining of an issue that they were getting ill or they were having effects of something. And I'm sure you've got some stories about those kind of instances where you get called in and only one person has a problem or two. Right, right. And, and you know, I work a lot with the facility managers and I mean, those are the, the maintenance guys. They're, they're also guys in the building who are in, in charge of keeping the building running and making sure there's no problems. And by the time I get there, they're kind of pulling their hair out. They've looked and smelled and can't find anything wrong. And, you know, they, they say, well, she's complaining of this bad smell and I can't smell it. Well, that doesn't really bother me because women have a much better sense of smell than men. Men's <laughs> sense of smell peaks about 18. Um, I love having female hygienists, right? If they, I like to put them to do into air quality investigations because if there is an odor, they may smell it and I can't. There's also, so again, you know, it's just like everything, you gotta take it, you, you, you've gotta go through step-by-step step and see if you can identify a problem. There was a case where there was a lady who worked in a corner of a building and she complained every couple of weeks of some really bad orders and it, she felt really sick and she had to, she had to leave. So we did an investigation, um, we brought a particle counter and we just happened to hit it, you know, bringing me into a building, I'm kind of like the, the car mechanic your problems never happen when I'm there, right? <laughs> that noise your car makes never happens when you bring it to the mechanic, your problems never, but we just have, they happened to get lucky when they were doing this investigation and they got some hits on the particle counter and they went outside the building to the next office bay that was there. And they found in this corner is where they were charging up their electric forklifts. And that's what it was. It was all the, acids and particulates being released from charging the forklifts that were wafting through the space where this poor woman was working. And it was really affecting her health and it was an issue. You know, it was pretty simple to fix, but if you, we just got kind of lucky to figure it out on that day in time. If they weren't charging the forklifts, we never would have found it. I had the same kind of situation in an office building that I worked in and we had several complaints at certain times of the day from this group and we could never figure it out. And then we realized that the alleyway right next to the building was also where the air intake was in any trucks or cars idling there were sending up the CO. So it was obviously, and it would impact certain people first. Some people have more of a sensitivity. And then we happened to find that out. So we had to post the area, no idling, don't run your vehicle here. It's just one of those, like you say, it's kind of a fluke sometimes when you discover these things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, we find that issue a lot. A lot of buildings like to put the fresh air intakes above the loading docks. You know, that's one of the, you know, we, I, I learned a long time ago, you've got to walk the exterior of the building and just take a look and see what's going on on the outside too. 
all, everything on the outside can be affecting what's going on inside. So it, indoor air quality is, is science and art and a whole mix of other things all put together, all jammed together under one header of indoor air quality. I mean, it could be chemical, physical, biological. There's all those things that could, you know, ergonomics, heat and cold stress, vibration, asbestos, silica, lead, PCBs, VOCs. There's all kinds of stuff that it could be. So I guess we need to look at our complainer as basically the canary in the mine. Yeah, absolutely. The most sensitive they're, the ones that are, they're the ones that are standing there and working in that site for eight hours a day, 40 hours a week, right? They know... They, on a un subconscious level, they know that something's affecting their health. It's, and these are all things that you can't see with the human eye, right? They're right. microscopic, they're odors, they're all, there's all kinds of different factors affecting the human body. And the people who know it are the ones standing there dealing with it. That's why when I go into these situations, I really need to meet and talk with the person who's being affected. If it's just one person. I mean, if it's 10 different people in a, the center of a building, okay, we've got, you know, right away, you want to look at the HVAC. It's affecting all kinds of different people. And you got to find out what the contaminant may be. It's, it's always a guessing game. Now, sometimes people can call me up and they can describe the odor and what's going on. And I could be 20 to 200 miles away on my phone and know exactly what the problem is and how to fix it. But I really need to kind of go and check it out, right? I can't put anything in writing because I haven't been there. You know, it is like tracking a mystery or clues because I had a situation where an office building and a garage were attached, okay? Everybody seemed to have headaches in the morning. And it took forever to realize that we're starting up all the trucks and vehicles first thing in the morning. And then all of a sudden the light went on, started doing some CO monitoring and bingo, it was above the permissible limits. So basically we put CO monitors in the garage and when it got to a certain point, the fans would kick in. It, it seems so simple when you look back, hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> right, right. So, well, so what, do you, what do you normally do when you go in with at a situation? What kind of things would you monitor for? So, so that we do a basic screening um, and you know, it can resolve 95% of the issues. Maybe, you know, I got to, you know, have you had any water leaks? Do you smell mold? Is there mold present? When was the last water leak? Are you conditioning the building? Um, I can do mold sampling. We do temperature, relative humidity. And I'm a big fan of carbon dioxide testing, especially with people trying to seal these buildings up so much now. They're using spray foam. They're putting in the new windows. I mean, I had a a gentleman who put new windows in his house and everything turned moldy. All his walls, everything. Wow. Well, his old crappy windows were allowing so much air through them, it was preventing the mold from growing. You put in the brand new windows and now the mold had the right temperature and humidity to start to grow. That's a good point. How do you uh, manage the energy savings versus exposing yourself to Exactly. I mean, and, and I really feel sorry for schools because their ventilation systems were designed how many years ago and were set up to meet today's requirements. We find a lot, plus they have a ton of people in there. You know, people are really dirty. 
if I do air sampling in a building and if there's a lot of people in it, my air samples are going to be kind of elevated. But I know that going in because we move around a lot. We don't just sit still. We're shedding skin cells and hair and fibers from our clothing. And every time we walk, we're re-entraining dust up into the air. You know, if you bring me into a building on a weekend, the air samples are going to be a heck of a lot different than they are on a Monday morning because it's had time to settle out. So air samples aren't always the answer. They, they're a tool in the toolbox, but we have a lot of different tools that we can use. And I think one of the best ones is carbon dioxide. Uh, particle meters are a great tool too. Now, your, is your best monitoring on a person, personal monitoring? It's a great question. And for indoor air quality, no. Not if, we, not, not if I haven't identified a, a problem yet or a source, right? If you can tell me there's a source involved, then I can figure out what we need to monitor for. I mean, I can monitor for anything. I can monitor for any chemical, any exposures, anything in the world. And that is millions of dollars, right? My job is to narrow that range down to is something affordable and will act inactionable. It's actually gonna help us determine what is going on. That's why we have a bunch of gadgets we bring with us, a bunch of, I guess I shouldn't use gadgets, but a bunch of calibrated instruments that we bring with us to do the initial round of testing where hopefully we can either resolve the problem, identify the problem and help you resolve it, or at least narrow it down where it's not this or this or this or this, and then we can move on from there. What kind of monitoring can an employer do before they call the experts in, I guess? So carbon monoxide is pretty easy. A lot of people can do that. Carbon dioxide is pretty easy. You can do that too. Um, molds a little. I, there's a lot of home test remedies for a mold where you just get a petri dish and you set it out and you see if anything grows. That's not really acceptable. I mean, I, I've set one of those up in my indoor air quality lab, my mold lab, where we're doing sampling analysis and we do testing in there all the time to prove that it's not contaminated. And we got hits on that Petri dish because mold's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. And you know, the lab report says, oh, you need to run screaming from your building. I'm in a, I'm in a lab, <laughs> right? So, so it's just setting out a Petri dish is not really an acceptable means from the industrial hygiene side. We use a calibrated pump. We know what the airflow rate is. We use cassettes or we can do viable mold and bacteria sampling. There's a lot of different things we can do. But again, if you've got mold in a building, do you really need to know what type it is? It shouldn't be there. Let's figure out why it's there and let's stop the water. We gotta stop the water. And the water can be a roof leak, pipe leak, or relative humidity. A lot of times, if you have relative humidity above 70% in your building, mold will start to grow on surfaces. Hmm. You need to condition the air, right? So we need to keep the relative humidity down. I mean, in Michigan, I've seen that if somebody it's either one summer or one winter, but if you don't occupy a building for one summer or one winter, you're going to have mold growth. 
That's just the nature of the business. Well, taking us back to schools then, what should they be doing? I mean, they're they're fogging, they're doing things like that because of the COVID, but what should they be doing? So they, they need to make sure they have enough fresh air coming into. I mean, back in the 80s, when we had the oil embargo, a lot of schools shut off their fresh air intakes. They were just, we, we found that, we used to find that quite a bit, where there'd be a piece of plastic over fresh air. You've got to have fresh air coming into your building. I, I don't, having said that, I don't like when people can open windows. Open, I, that's unfiltered, untreated air coming into the building. I like the air to all come in from the air handling units. It goes through the filtration process and then it gets put into the building. Having unfiltered, untreated air coming into your building can lead to some issues. Schools don't have great HVAC systems. They use the, at least in Michigan, they use the unit ventilators quite a bit. The unit ventilator is a little fan unit that sits on the exterior wall. It's got a gap for fresh air to come in and it typically just provides heat, not air conditioning. As soon as school's over, like right now, all these schools, the custodians are going through and emptying them out and cleaning the carpets getting all the furniture and desk out, cleaning the carpets, cleaning the room. Once they get it all clean, they put everything back in, shut the door, move on to the next room. We get calls every August, every August we get calls of schools having mushrooms growing in the carpet. They didn't allow it enough time to dry. They didn't put the fans in there to give enough fresh air in there. They're not running any ventilation inside that room after they clean the carpet. That's a lot of moisture to be putting into a space and you gotta let that, gotta give that moisture time to get out of the building and dry. Huh, you're almost suggesting that each room have its own air filter system. Almost. And that's one of the things that we found with COVID is that felt, you know, the more fresh air we can bring into a space, the better it is because COVID, it's an aerosol. People are exhausting. I mean, people are, every time you speak, every time you talk, you're blowing out aerosols. That's why we put the mask on. So your aerosol cloud doesn't go that far, right? But in schools, if you don't have a lot of good fresh air, we can go to supplemental HEPA filters inside of a room to help try to clean some of those particulates out of the air. And that's one of the, unless you're gonna install a brand new HVAC system with state-of-the-art, um, oh no, my mind just snapped ultraviolet lights inside the HVAC system, right? That is a good use for ultraviolet light. Huh. I used to think the science classes and the labs were the places to be worried about, but now you've, <laughs> it sounds like every classroom has their issues. Every, every, you know, the great thing about my job is there isn't a building that I can't walk into and find something wrong, right? Well, every not building, a good thing. Well, every, <laughs> A lot of them are minor and they may or may not know, they may or may not identify the problem. You know, we, I think of indoor air quality like an onion. You've got lots of layers. You've got to peel off till you find the silver bullet. And a lot of times you peel that onion and there's no silver bullet. It's just, let's try this step. Let's try this step. Let's try this step. And we keep moving up and up and up. And then pretty soon the problem's gone. But <laughs> Oh, it all costs time and money and, and maintenance, preventive maintenance is a big issue. 
and, and that it's tough. It's expensive. A lot of times they don't pay for the, they don't want to pay the maintenance guys to do the preventative maintenance. So in a few years, they have to call me because now they got a big problem. I just remember all the problems with asbestos being everywhere as an insulator and at schools and government beds everywhere. And all the time and money we had to spend trying to train maintenance people to handle it correctly or bring someone in. And we just seem to create more problems with everything we, <laughs> we use. And, and, you know, asbestos hasn't gone away. It's still there. I mean, we can still, we can go to Home Depot and Menards and Lowe's and buy asbestos products on the shelf. It's perfectly legal. So, wow. uh, yeah. And that's as long as you don't cut it or wet it or, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but install it or put it in, you've got to cut yeah, exactly. it. So it's going right? to get wet, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so shifting gears a little bit, uh, most people, they walk around with the, the name of an EHS professional in a, in a company. What does that really mean? It sounds like what you're talking about is a full-time job. Yeah. So, so, and this isn't, and so much in the larger companies, uh, EHS is environmental health and safety, and that's three different positions, and they staff it where it's actually three different positions, a couple people in each division. The smaller companies, they, have, they don't have the money to establish these positions, right? It becomes the HR's problem. You know, you're doing human resources and now you're doing EHS or you're an engineer and oh, by the way, you get to do EHS now, right? And trying to do environmental health and safety with another full-time job, that's three, that's four full-time jobs you now have on your plate and you just cannot do it acceptably. Though they sound right? like they're related because it seems like environmental has to work with industrial hygiene to be sure that they're not putting things in that are going to be detrimental. And then the safety person also fits into the physical hazards. So it sounds like it should be really related, but I've been you know, my, my last employer was an environmental laboratory that measured all kinds of different contaminants. And they worked with a lot of environmental consultants and we could talk about lead and they get it. But what I needed for lead was ocean numbers. What everybody else needs for lead was discharge numbers and water numbers and parts per billion range and not anything to do with industrial hygiene. They, we really butted heads. Environmental and industrial hygiene don't mesh very well. We talk the same language, but we're using way different comparisons. Well, like you would get right down to like in the lead exposures and some of the poor subsidized housing where children are chewing on chips of lead. And I asked you, why would they do that? And you said, because it's sweet. And I thought, how would they know? <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, kids, that's how they explore their environment. Everything goes into the mouth. So, uh, sorry. But, it, but, in, but industrial hygiene, why don't some, not, why don't we understand what they do? I mean, we need them obviously, but how come we don't understand that what they do and uh, why they're important? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I, I've had the opportunity to interview a whole bunch of environmental college students, sophomores, juniors, for internships, for different projects. And I can't, I always ask them, what is an industrial hygienist? 
And these are people going to accredited universities and know they have this environmental degree and they're all hip on environmental stuff, but not one of them knows what an industrial hygienist is. It's like we're a dying breed out here. I, and and most of the industrial hygienists you talk to kind of fell into this career. There are very few accredited programs out there for someone to learn industrial hygiene, even in Michigan. That's kind of scary from what we've just been talking about. So where do you think, so that's where you think the IH field is going from here? What can we yeah, do to change maybe, that? I mean, you know, a lot of, you, you know, even at the Michigan Safety Conference, if you go there, there's a lot of industrial hygienists who've got gray hair or no hair like me, right? <laughs> we're, we're getting older and there's a lot of people leaving and that institutional knowledge is leaving, going out the door with them. So it, I really would like to see younger people getting into the field. I love when the young people get it into. I'd love mentoring them and hiring them as interns and, and you know, telling them, look, it's pretty cool to put industrial hygienist on your resume. Well, you heard, it here for, you heard it here first, folks, that uh, Dave is all set to mentor anybody who wants to go into the IH field. So be sure to get his uh, email address. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would love to help. I mean, if we can get more people, you know, I mean, I learned a long time ago, you need to hire people who are way smarter than you are when you're doing this. And, oh, absolutely. And there's, a, there's a couple people at the Michigan Safety Conference that started off with me and I helped mentor them. And now they've gone steps above me and they're in the executive committee now, right? Going to be a new president of the Michigan Safety Conference. I'm happier than heck to see that, right? I love to get people going on the path of righteousness. Well, do you think the COVID uh, pandemic has maybe opened up some people's eyes about the importance of industrial hygiene? I would hope so, Sheila. I mean, I, I, it, 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 there's a lot of pushback on COVID, right? There's a lot of people who don't believe it. They don't trust the science. They don't trust the government and, and, and that I'm just worried that that may put another bad light on to the profession. Well, those who, uh, of us who are in the trenches, though, we do know that people get sick and we do know there are factors in their workplace that cause that to happen. And we'd yeah, like to be and, able to mitigate and, that. And we, you know, we can come in and help. I mean, I've, I've got people in hospitals every day, fit testing nurses and doctors with res for respirators, right? We, we develop plans for people to go back into buildings because of COVID. We need to come in and we do a bunch of testing to make sure the building's safe to occupy. I mean, when this first started, it's like anything with the science, you, you don't really know what's gonna happen. There's the basics you can follow from industrial hygiene, but until we get more data, you know, we start off on cleaning all the surfaces, right? We are fogging the heck out of buildings to try and kill any COVID that was on it. Now we've come to find out, look, you know, and the environmental, the surface thing is not so important as a, the trans, as a way to transport the COVID into your body. It's an aerosol, it's a particle. Well, we can deal with those particles, but that's ventilation. It's more fresh air, but it's HEPA filtration. It's ultraviolet light. It's all kinds of different things. Every building's different. I wish I could, I, I can't tell you one way to fix it all, I can't tell you to bring in 100% fresh air because 
you can't afford it. You can't, you can't take 100% fresh air and air condition it or heat it without your energy costs quadrupling, going 10 times higher, right? It's just not economically feasible to bring in that much fresh air. So now we got to go, well, how much can we bring in? How much can we treat? How can we fix the air coming in so we have a safer building inside? I'm back to individual filters for every room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it begs well, the question. Know, it comes back to, the, you know, we say this in industrial hygiene all the, all the time. Dilution is a solution to the pollution. The more <laughs> fresh air we can bring in, the better it is. Okay, I got to ask then, what are they doing in an airplane when you're 30,000 feet in the air? So, so airplanes, you know, right, you can't just open a fresh air, you know, you're 30,000 feet, you don't have enough oxygen to breathe. So you can't just open up a fresh air intake and bring that air in. But they have gone to recycling the air with HEPA filtration. And the airlines are pretty proud of there. There's no, right, they've done data, they haven't had many transmittable cases of COVID on an airline. And, and during COVID, I was on airplanes all the time. Oh, I always felt pretty comfortable in it because I knew they were filtering the air. I thought that they had a measles outbreak, though, on a plane. I thought I read that a couple of years ago, someone on the plane. So HEPA filtration may be a newer step, right? They may, they've always had filtration. They may not have gone up to HEPAs. They're more expensive. Gotcha. So any final thoughts? Words of wisdom, though I think you said it with the dilution is the solution. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, there's a lot of different aspects out there that are harmful to people. Um, and we can help you identify them and develop the appropriate engineering controls and then personal protective equipment if needed to reduce those exposures to people. But again, there's, there's no one thing that, there's very little contaminants out there where if you're exposed to it for five minutes, it's gonna kill you, right? Plutonium is kind of bad. Plutonium is probably the worst thing in the world, but the human body is amazing how much it can fight. I, I've got a microscope sitting on my desk right here. I look at air samples all the time and you wouldn't believe what you breathe in every day all the stuff that's floating in the air that our bodies inhale. And our bodies do a pretty good job of getting it out and of, of reducing those exposures. Just sometimes the body overreacts, you develop an allergy, you need some help making it go away. And you can't just sit in a building full of mold, right? I've, I've worked with a bunch of clients who were in their building, they were doing demolition, and significant mold exposures, a significant mold exposures produced if you do demolition. You need to get out or be in PPE, right? It impacted them so bad. They were coughing up blood in a Myers parking lot. They Good couldn't memory. do their job anymore. There are some cases where people have some really significant health effects. And it's not just mold. There's all kinds of different stuff out there, right? If you've got a problem, you've got to address it. And maintenance of the buildings is one of the best ways to prevent the problem from happening. So support your maintenance staff, exactly. Yes, exactly, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. I, and I love those maintenance guys. When I walk into one of those buildings, I wanna find the guy who's got the 30 keys on his keychain. <laughs> that is my brother. <laughs> I gotcha.
Well, solving mysteries, finding answers to employee health concerns, protecting the public from hazard situations, all in a day's work for an industrial hygienist. All in a day's work. Thank you very much. And, and learning through science, I think that's what we talked about, is a tough sell at times, most uh, recently illustrated by the COVID pandemic, as scientists work through uh, the many clues provided as the virus progressed. Right. So that's what I keep thinking of. And, and we find that with every contaminant, right? As it progresses. I mean, I've, I've been, even with asbestos, we're still learning more about that. And that, asbestos has been around forever. That's asbestos, how a lot of us got started. But silica is jumping up to the forefront now, right? Yep. And the heavy metals. I just read an article where the uh, volcano blew off and they think that's what caused a mass extinction because so much nickel was in that huh. ash when they blew it up. The nickel poisoned all the sea and land and that's what caused the mass extinction. Solving yeah. a mystery, exactly, with the clues. <laughs> well, okay, appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. Uh, you can contact Dave at ForensicAnalytical.com. If you'd like more information about this podcast or the Michigan Safety Conference, please contact us at michsafetyconference.org. And thank you for listening to Safety Spectrum. This is Sheila Ike.